What's up, Bike Rumor fans? If you have or are considering buying an e-bike of any kind, chances are, right about now, you're wondering about battery safety. And you might also be wondering how to maximize the battery's performance. With the recent lithium-ion battery fires in New York creating political will to ban unlisted, non-certified batteries in e-bikes, electric scooters, and other e-mobility devices, I wanted to talk to an expert on e-bike battery safety. My guest today is Kunal Kapoor, Senior Manager of Quality and Compliance for Bosch. As one of the leading brands of e-bike drive systems, they know a thing or two about battery design, safety, and performance. So I picked his brain on all of those things. If you're wondering how to best charge, store, and maximize the life of your e-bike's battery, this short episode is packed full of useful info and great information. Please welcome Kunal Kapoor. Hey, Kunal, welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. Thank you, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for making the time. So what prompted this call is the pending, if it's not already passed by the time people are listening to this, legislation in New York about e-bike batteries, and not just e-bike, but e-mobility, really, like batteries that are going into scooters and e-bikes and rental bikes and all kinds of other things. And so I I wondered if you could just kind of kick us off with a comment about what prompted that legislation? You know, I know there's been a few fires, but like, how does Bosch view this legislation and what's going on right now? So, um, you know, I'll try to answer what prompted this. And you're right that, uh, you know, the skew of uh, fires uh, around uh, lithium-ion batteries is what prompted this legislation. And we, Bosch, we commend the city of New York uh, for taking actions uh, which should lead to safer products in the market and um, hopefully reduce uh, the fires that we have been seeing lately. E-bikes seem to be getting the brunt of the, the headlines on it, unfortunately. Do you have any data that shows, like, is it mostly bikes or is it the scooters or hoverboards or, you know, what exactly is it that's catching fire? So that's a problem, uh, you know, we are dealing in the e-bike industry where out-of-class vehicles are often termed as e-bikes um, in, in, in the news reports or the media that we see today. I'm not saying that none of them are e-bikes, but there's a lot, like even sometimes there are e-scooters or other types of micromobility devices involved, like mopeds, etc. as well, which are also termed as e-bikes. One thing that I'd like to make it clear that uh, there are three types of e-bikes, class one, two, and three. If anything that is outside of these three class system, then that's not an e-bike and shouldn't be referred to as such. I can explain a little bit very quickly what these three types of e-bikes are, if you're interested. Yeah, that'd be great if you could give us a quick run through. Sure. So class one e-bike is a pedal assist bike where uh, you only get assistance from the motor once you are pedaling and it shuts off the motor assistance at 20 miles per hour. That's a class one e-bike. Class three e-bike is exactly the same concept, but the motor assistance shuts off at 28 miles per hour. And the class two e-bike is the one with the throttle and that also the assistance cuts off at 20 miles per hour max uh, speed. So these are the three different types of e-bikes that are recognized, I believe in 38 or 39 states in the US. This three class system is recognized. And in our opinion, anything outside of this three class system is is not an e-bike. Okay, and we should note that some of that, those numbers, those top speeds vary a little bit for the European market, but they still use that class one or class three nomenclature. But for practical purposes, the class one is a little bit slower, class three is a little bit faster, and then the class two has a throttle. So I, I've seen then 
I'm not going to name any bike brands in this episode for, you know, for good or bad, just to kind of keep it top level. But I've definitely seen some bikes that are marketed as a class three, but then with the option of adding a throttle or basically just like flicking a switch, and then all of a sudden you have a throttle, like it's super easy to modify them. So at that point, is that technically a out of class motorized bicycle? That's a very good question. And that's something uh, we are also evaluating at this time. That What category should that fall under? Technically, you know, there are definitions out there for these three class system. And this seems to escape uh, exactly the definitions that are written for class one, two and three. But technically, if you design it properly, and you have a system, you know, that shuts off at 20 miles per hour when it's on throttle, but then you can still have pedal assist up to 28 miles per hour, you know, it still might be within the intent of the three-class system. That's my opinion. Okay, interesting, cool. So as far as the batteries in these go, my assumption, and I have done admittedly zero research on this, but there are a lot of very, very, very inexpensive, and I would even just call them flat-out cheap with every intonation that that word implies, e-bikes out there, which I think the big problem here are batteries that are not UL listed, not maybe properly tested or certified. Are those the ones causing the fires as far as you know, or are we seeing like some really high quality batteries becoming an issue as well? So uh, definitely the untested and uncertified batteries that are out there are definitely a high risk item uh, that can cause fires. But I cannot guarantee that there's no other component on an e-bike system that can not be a source of ignition. Yes, uh, the battery could be the most prominent culprit that can uh, lead to a fire. But when you have certified batteries as opposed to just tested, so there is a big difference between a tested battery and a certified battery. Once you have a certified battery, it means that there's a third-party NRTL nationally recognized testing laboratory who has certified your battery or the complete system of an e-bike. And then as part of the certification, there are regular quarterly unannounced inspections by these companies at your manufacturing locations to ensure that the product that you submitted for testing and certification, you continue to use the same materials, same components to make sure that you do not produce uh, an an inferior product later down the line uh, than what you submitted for testing. So it's very important to know the difference between a tested battery and a certified battery. You could produce a golden sample, meaning use the best of the components, best of the materials, take it to a lab, have it pass one time, but then later on, you know, change the components or design or materials and, and, you know, have an inferior product. But when you have certification, you know, there is policing to make sure that you, that, that you still make a quality product with which you were certified initially. Yeah. And, and so what are they testing and certifying for and with the batteries in particular? So with the batteries in particular, they're testing for overcharge protection. They're charging for drop tests. They're, they're charging for environmental impact to make sure water does not get in. There's short circuit tests. There are abnormal tests. There are functional safety requirements in which basically they have to uh, check the robustness of the software and hardware combination of your battery management system that it will prevent 
a fire from taking place, monitor the temperatures inside a battery and take meaningful action and shut down the battery in a time that it does not lead to anything catastrophic. Right on. So as far as Bosch goes, have have you had any reports of Bosch batteries catching on fire or having any sort of adverse event? Uh, Not to my knowledge, no. But if, you know, the any battery can stop working. We can't say that our batteries can work 100% of the time. Sometimes there are certain batteries that, that will stop working due to various reasons, but uh, not to the extent of a fire. Yeah, nothing that's causing a life-threatening situation. Well, that's good. So what is it about the design? Is it mainly just sealing it really well, like the cells inside against outside you know, environmental elements like water or dust or whatever, and then just having like a cutoff circuitry so that it knows if it's getting too hot or too much current or it's fully charged, it just shuts off the connection between the power supply and the battery itself? So there's a lot that can go into a state-of-the-art battery design. I cannot speak to other manufacturers, but I can speak to, to our design. So some of the things that we incorporate in our battery is a fuse link cell to cell. So what that means is that it's an integrated fuse that ensures an electrical interruption in the event of an increased current flow of a cell. So as a result, the other cells of the batteries are protected and possible spread of heat is contained. That's one example. Second is a flame retardant cell cover the individual battery packs have individual cells inside so the individual cells are encased in a flame retardant plastic and in a rare case of a short circuit within the cell this encapsulation ensures that an affected cell provides the best possible protection for the other cells third is a waterproof sealed housing so seals with multiple sealing lips at front and rear ends of our power tube batteries and all around sealed housing of our power packs battery reduces the risk that can arise from entry of water or dust in adverse weather conditions next is the battery management system the and the bms has two main objectives safety and optimization of the performance of the battery pack next is a thermal separation of cells It is an important mechanism to reduce the risk of overheating and a possible thermal chain reaction. In the event of a gas development in the battery, it enables a controlled process. The gas can escape in a controlled manner via predetermined breaking points in the battery. And the last, I would say, is an automized assembly, increased level of automation, and uh, you know, starting with assembly of cell holders, with the cells through the connection of individual cell blocks to the sealing of the entire bike battery, the risk from potential assembly errors is reduced. So having an automized assembly line really helps. So these are the few things that we do with our battery packs at Bosch. Yeah, that's a lot. So I, I'm curious because I've seen, I've not seen like a cutaway of a Bosch battery, but I've seen others, and every single one of them that I've seen looks like what amounts to a whole lot of AA sized battery cells. Is that how you guys build yours as well? That is correct. So the lithium ion cells inside the battery pack are AA. I mean, they look like AA cells, yes. And uh, most of the battery packs today use that. Why is that? Because it seems like, could you not just put make bigger cells? And then also, I, I, I say that because I think you know, like I'm impressed. I think it's important to impress upon everyone listening that like when you say there's all these little management and barriers and every fuses between every single cell, there's 
I don't know how many cells are in there. It's like, you know, 80 or something. Could be 40 or 50, depending on uh, the size of the battery pack. So that's a lot of, lot of protection mechanisms packed in there. But yeah, so why do you use so many small cells instead of, you know, just a few big ones or even just like one giant one? <sighs> Let me see how I can answer this. So the battery has to be a certain size. You know, the, we have to work with our OEMs to make battery packs that can be incorporated well into the frame of the bikes. When you reduce the size of the cells, and we also have to depend on cell manufacturers, Bosch does not make the cell inside the, our battery packs. We do make the battery pack, but not the cell. We source the cells. So we have to rely on the kind of cells that are available outside as well. And at this time, the best size is, is the size that we use today to have the battery density and in the in the shape and size that we need to to support the frames that they they go into in the bicycles gotcha okay that makes sense so as far as you know you me everybody listening who has an e-bike goes you know I, i'll be honest i pretty much plug mine in or my kids plug theirs in when they get home from riding it and they're in the garage you know, we have a detached garage, thankfully, but, you know, come out in the morning, unplug it and go ride again. But I've heard you should like bring the battery inside. You shouldn't leave it unattended. What's the best practice? And then what's like a safe real world scenario? So, you know, the e-bike battery must not be left unattended while charging. I would definitely say that. Uh, and do not place the charger or the battery pack near flammable materials. Also charge in rooms with uh, smoke detectors. Uh, in the real world, in a, your garage, it may not be possible that you have a smoke detector inside the garage. Some garages may have it, but then the best thing would be to not leave it unattended while charging. And also very important is read and observe the safety warnings and instructions and the operating instructions of the e-bike system. There are a lot of useful information on the labels on the battery itself that people tend to ignore, but, but they should be very carefully read and followed. Another important thing is use only the original battery charger supplied with your e-bike or one approved for your e-bike by the manufacturer and purchased from a trusted source. Don't try to use third-party chargers with a battery pack. For example, Bosch batteries should only be charged with Bosch chargers. I know you guys sell a few different chargers, if I'm remembering right. You have like a high, you know, they come with one charger, but then you can buy like a high-performance charger that'll charge it faster. So uh, short of like buying it from a bike shop or directly from Bosch, is there, do you recommend against like shopping on Amazon or something like that? Because like, have you seen counterfeit chargers out there? I personally have not seen a counterfeit charger, but this is not to say that since I have not seen, there may not be counterfeit chargers. I'm just saying that I have not seen one personally. Yeah. What about batteries? Are you, is there a, a issue with either Bosch or otherwise, like, have you seen counterfeit batteries for some of the like credible brands? So I would say I've not seen counterfeit batteries, but I have seen batteries being sold, which may have been opened and, and serviced and there's somebody's trying to resell them. And that's also, you know, it's not a, you should never buy such a battery because we always tell never open, manipulate or repair the charger or the battery because these are very complex electronic parts which have been sealed and tested once they leave the manufacturing facility so if somebody's opening it up and fixing it and and closing it back you know first of all it loses its certification that it ever had because now it has been opened in the field and the second is 
no, we cannot guarantee or nobody can guarantee how somebody has has fixed it and closed it back properly or not. I think I'd be kind of sketched out to use a third party fiddled with battery. All right. So for somebody like me who probably has not read all the warnings and instruction manuals that come with our e-bikes, what's the other than the things that you've already mentioned, right? Like what is it? What are the main warnings and guides on those batteries and chargers that most people ignore? The one that you should, uh, the e-bike battery must not be left unattended while charging. Do not place the charger or battery pack near flammable materials or on flammable materials. I mean, people would charge them on carpets, you know. <laughs> so, you know, these are the two main, I would say, points that uh, people probably tend to ignore. Yeah. Is there a, a lot of bikes have the battery can be removed fairly easily. Is there any benefit or not to charging? just plugging it in with the battery still in the bike versus pulling it out and charging it independently of the bike? No, that's just a convenience factor. It has no impact on safety on how you charge your battery. Okay, cool. Um, so I, I don't have any other safety questions, but if there's something you'd like to add before we start getting into like the performance aspect of e-bikes and batteries. Sure. So, you know, we did talk a lot about product safety. You know, there is uh, something called rider safety as well, where, you know, there is a lot of accidents that happen uh, between uh, bicyclists or in general, we call them VRUs, vulnerable road users and automobiles. So I would like to, uh, you know, uh, bring your attention to a little bit on this topic as well for a couple of minutes that, you know, there is a VR, there is a VRU consortium that was created in 2021. And the goal of this consortium is to bring together vehicle OEMs, technology developers, bike manufacturers, and e-mobility companies for a neutral forum committed to uh, solutions to improve safety for um, all road users. So the goal of this consortium is to research and facilitate introduction of technology best practices to make automobiles and VRUs digitally visible to each other, or in other words, talk to each other to make their presence felt to reduce road accidents. So there's a lot of work going on in this direction as well. So just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up. Because I know at Sea Otter last year, there was a a demo with a brand. And I, I'm forgetting who, I'm sorry, but there was, uh, you know, it was integrated into an Audi. And they had a test car there with the bicycle rider, you know, rolling around the parking lot with the sensors and transmitters on there. But it, it, it definitely relied upon having a cellular signal or a very powerful transmitter on the bike and then the integrated equipment on the car, which, you know, we're not there yet, but there are systems out in place. But so what's, what is Bosch looking at right now in terms of integrating the electronics necessary to speak, you know, in real time to vehicles? Bosch is one of the founding members of that consortium along with other members. And uh, what we are working in that consortium is, again, to find the right technology. Uh, first of all, we've, uh, we worked on finding what is the most prevalent accident scenarios globally, because we this consortium has a global view, not just a US, uh, US view. So we are trying to see what we can do uh, together to reduce accidents worldwide. So the first thing was to figure out, you know, what kinds of accidents can we can we prevent from happening? So if there are 10 different types, which types cause the most amount of accidents? So all that research was done. And once those were found out, so the next step 
technologically is to find out which technology is it uh, bluetooth is it uh, is it cellular which technology would fit best to reduce what kinds of accidents so right now we are in that research phase and working together to find out what's that right technology is and once we decide as a consortium then of course we'll move on to the next step within the consortium to to find more solutions yeah how far away are we from seeing some sort of solution integrated into a vehicle is it like a year or two or are we talking like 10 years I wouldn't say 10 years. Uh, I can't predict if it will be in two years or less, but because at this time we are really in a, this research phase where, where we have to, you know, first do some prototyping and then some testing and where that leads to, you know, I can't predict at this time. So what are the 10 or so, you know, whatever the accident scenarios are, you know, what are the top two or three most common? So just so we can all kind of be more aware and pay more attention when we're about to do something stupid. Well, the, I, um, if I, my memory serves me correct, hitting from behind, uh, that was one of the, the top three accident scenarios. And the second one was uh, when when a bicyclist is making a left turn and the car coming straight is can't, you know, uh, uh, it's too late until the time the bicyclist makes a turn and the car is going straight and, and that hits the, the bicyclist. That was, I, I, if, I, my, if my memory serves me correct, these were the top two scenarios. And this information comes from, you know, publicly available data sources. You know, this is not something we generate. So we extract this information from uh, publicly available data sources. This Bike Number podcast is brought to you by the Pros Closet. Wherever you ride, the Pros Closet has road, mountain, gravel, and e-bikes to get you there. TPC carries a curated selection of new and certified pre-owned bikes and a constantly expanding selection of parts, accessories, and apparel. With available financing and competitive pricing, TPC has everything you need to gear up this season. Visit theprosecloset.com slash bikerumor and enter code BRPODCAST to save $40 on every order over 200 So, uh, you know, everybody's pretty familiar with the Garmin Varia radar and Cannondale has a, their own kind of radar solution system built into a few of their bikes, including semi bikes. And so is Bosch working on something similar or have you looked at integrating some sort of radar system just to give the cyclist more of a heads up even if the vehicles aren't ready yet to automatically react so unfortunately you know due to intellectual property uh, topic i'm i cannot disclose uh, <laughs> further on this particular topic i apologize that's all right i kind of figured that would be your answer but i like to ask anyway <laughs> Cool. Well, yeah, thank you. The, you know, the one thing, since you brought up safety from a rider standpoint, the one thing that I want to mention, because I, I don't think a lot of people realize how important the safety feature a torque sensor is. And if you don't know what that is, you know, a torque sensor is when if you start pedaling bikes without a torque sensor, as soon as you start pedaling, all they're sensing is motion at the at the cranks, the cadence, and they'll just deliver 100% of the power at whatever setting you have. And you know, for an inexperienced rider or even, you know, someone like myself who rides a lot, if you're not expecting it and you came to a stop at an intersection with the bike on like turbo mode and you hit, you just touch the crank and it just launches out from under you, it can become a real safety issue. And so bikes with a torque sensor adjust the amount of output based on how hard you're pedaling, not just the fact that you are pedaling. And it, it provides a much more progressive onboarding of power and a much safer onboarding of power. And, um, you know, I just, I think like 
you know, an older person or a kid riding a bike and they just touch it and they're just launched out, not really ready to react, they could really put themselves in a pretty dangerous situation. I'm curious if you have any input on that or if there's other features generally that kind of differentiate like a really high quality bike from some of the super cheap stuff out there. You know, Bosch, I think, is the first company to introduce ABS uh, on e-bikes as well. Especially the, you know, it's it's the front wheel ABS and wheel speed sensors monitor the speed of the wheels. So if locking of the front wheel is anticipated during excessive braking, uh, Bosch e-bike ABS controls the braking pressure and improves the riding stability and uh, steerability of the e-bike. And this is particularly evident on uh, slippery surfaces. Um, so, you know, this this is a major uh, innovation uh, in e-bike safety um, that you can now have an ABS on your e-bike. Yeah, was that that was in development with Magura. Am I right or am I thinking of a different system? Yes, if my memory serves me correct, yes. Yeah, that's really cool. So are you starting to see more adoption on that? Because I've seen the system at the trade shows, but I haven't really seen more than maybe one or two bikes launch with it. We are hoping to see more bikes with ABS uh, fall off this year. Okay, very cool. In the U.S. Very cool. Uh, can you name brands or do you want to or just leave it at that? No, I cannot name brands at the moment. <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's talk about performance and range because you know range is a pretty important one for us, especially if we're going mountain biking and we want to try and get really far out there and get the most of it. So the one thing I've heard that really helps with the batteries lasting longer and even the entire drivetrain and system lasting longer is keeping your cadence somewhere between like 80 and 95 RPM because it's producing, you know, you're not like grinding up a, a hill and requiring a whole lot of extra torque from the motor and therefore, you know, it's, it's drawing a little bit less power from the battery. Is that, does that hold up for Bosch systems as well? So, you know, this is a common uh, question, you know, the, there is no definitive answer, unfortunately. The number and variety of influential factors is simply too great. Sometimes a single battery charge will take you less than 20 kilometers, while uh, at times it will take you much further than 80 kilometers. However, you know, you know, if you keep it at a constant speed, you know, are not going over too many hilly areas, on all those factors influence influence the range. Yeah, it's 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 a little hard to answer that. Yeah, are there any riding styles? You know, if you take terrain out of it, you take body weight out of it. Is there just things you can do in terms of like how you ride? You know, you mentioned keeping a steady pace as much as possible. Is there anything else we can do as riders to just kind of milk a little bit extra mileage out of these things? You know, I, I don't have a good answer for this question. I apologize. Uh, uh, yeah. All right. What about um, how we charge them? Because I've you know I've heard there's you know a lot of electronics. Maybe if you keep the battery somewhere between sixty and eighty percent, it's it's kind of ideal. But you know I think like with the iPhone now, it'll try and learn your charging habits so that it can optimize its charging pattern to prolong the overall lifespan of the battery. What are some things we can do when we are charging these or using them? Like should we? You know, for example, my kids ride their bikes to school and my daughter might tr plug hers in like at the end of the week, right? Because she's not going that far. Should she be plugging it in after every ride or let the battery drain down and then plug it in and charge it fully? So there is no memory effect in lithium ion battery packs. And when I say that, I mean, is you could charge 
you know up to 100% you could charge up to every uh, after every ride it will have no impact on the battery life at least on posh batteries it will have no impact charging it to up 30% and keeping it always between 30% and 80% um, no it will have no impact like that uh, on the battery life okay but factors that can shorten the service life is uh, storage uh, over 30 degrees c ambient temperature and prolonged uh, storage in a fully charged or fully discharged state for for a long durations like you you charge it and but you don't use it for a very long time or you fully discharge the battery and it's been lying like that for 3 months 6 months it could go in a deep discharge state from which it may not come back yeah I've definitely had that happen to some of my RC car batteries, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so 30 days maybe is, would you say that's kind of the max to let it sit at any one charge state? Sure, that, that's that's a reasonable uh, reasonable time, yes. Okay. I mean, I think for, for anybody, that's probably the longest their bike is going to sit and use, hopefully. But, you know, maybe for winter. So what's the ideal, like, if you were going to, like, put your bike away for the winter, if you live further north? keep it at what like 60% storage during winter you know store the batteries in a dry location first at room temperature fully charging or fully discharging results in again higher loading of the battery the ideal charge status for lengthy periods of storage is approximately 30 to 60% or 2 to 3 LEDs on the battery indicator okay perfect yeah speaking of cold I've noticed, and probably other people have, much to their dismay, that in really cold weather, the batteries just don't last as long. Is that, you know, is there anything we can do about that? Or is that just the nature of lithium-ion cells? I think that's just the nature. Uh, but in winter use, I mean, what we recommend is during winter use, particularly below zero, we recommend charging and again, again, charging and, charging and storing the battery at room temperature before inserting the battery in the e-bike immediately before riding it. For longer journeys, you know, in the cold, it is advisable to use thermal protective covers if you have any. Huh. So the, the temperature which the battery is being charged matters. So like if I were going to versus charging in my garage, which might be really cold, should I bring the bike in or the battery in to charge it? And like, does that make a difference? Um, no, that does not make a, a difference. What I'm trying to say is, yes, if it, in sub-zero temperatures, <laughs> in sub-zero temperatures, okay. yes, uh, you, we do recommend charging and storing the battery at room temperature before you insert the battery in. Gotcha. All right, cool. Yeah, If you have anything else you'd like to share on kind of battery performance, I'd love to hear it because I do want to circle back to the safety thing to kind of wrap us up. No, I think, uh, you know, uh, we talked about the things that uh, the, the the warnings that people should adhere to when they are charging their batteries. So that's a, that's good. And I think uh, before we move back to safety, maybe uh, there's one other thing that I'd like to inform you about is energy efficiency. People uh, tend to overlook this, but there are, you know, mandatory requirements in U.S. Department of Energy or California Energy Commission or Natural Resources Canada that any chargers and any device within a charging or any device which has a charging circuit for your rechargeable lithium-ion batteries 
they must comply with mandatory requirements of uh, energy efficiency, meaning how much energy can a product use in a 24-hour period. And these are mandatory requirements. So even your HMIs or the display units in the middle of your handlebar, if they have a rechargeable lithium-ion battery and a charging circuit for that battery inside, they must comply with these energy efficiency requirements. So it's it's a, it's good to know, good to have this information so that you can check the products that you're using, you know, uh, have some sort of a proof of this, this, uh, this energy efficiency certification because you don't, yeah, there could be, you know, uh, repercussions, well, not to the consumer, but uh, to the product itself if they're found that they're not compliant. Yeah, interesting. What is that certification? Basically, uh, this certification can be achieved by going to any third-party lab and you send your products in for testing. They, they, they usually have a sample size of three and they basically test to make sure that the amount of energy you consume in a 24-hour period is, is less than, you know, X amount. And that X amount is different for different devices and and a calculation needs to take place. And the reason for these requirements is, again, you know, is more towards sustainability to make sure that uh, we don't impact the grid and then have sustainable products also. Yeah. Is there a, a certain label we should look for? Like I know UL listed is a pretty common one for a lot of electronic products. So different agencies have different appearing labels. I know UL has a, what they call a UL leaf mark. It looks like a leaf. That's why it's called that. And uh, so you could look for that. And I I don't remember the other certification labs mark. What what does it look like? But from UL, it looks like a leaf. Okay. If speaking of power draw, is there any pro or con to leaving the charger plugged into the wall, or like should we unplug it from the wall when we're not actually charging a battery? The best practice would be that it should be removed from the wall, but if it's kept in the, uh, inserted in the wall, it will not lead to any safety hazard, but as a best practice, you should remove it. Is it drawing like a little bit of power, even if it's not charging? There could be very, very minuscule amount of uh, residual, uh, you know, uh, charge that it could be drawing, but again, it has no significant impact on anything. Okay, great. Yeah, so coming back to the what started this conversation, you know, the New York safety bill and all that. I, my hunch is once New York passes this, if they haven't already, it'll it'll kind of spread around. It'll become hopefully a national, if not international kind of standard and require that certification. But for the people who already have a bike now, is it mainly the UL listing icon that they should be looking for on their equipment? The standard is UL2849. Any accredited lab who has UL2849 within their scope to certify an e-bike system can certify the product. So what I mean is, uh, for example, Bosch. Bosch uses Intertech as the certification partner. Intertech is a third-party NRTL lab. They certify our complete e-bike system to UL2849 standard. So if you pick up a... a Bosch system product and our system certification logo happens to appear on our battery pack, you will see Intertech's certification logo, not UL's certification logo. In our older products, we we used to be certified by UL, so our older products may still have the UL certification logo. Our newer products um, have the certification from Intertech, but the safety standard remains the same. 
Okay. So for, yeah, like I never would have known that. So I would have been looking for the UL and I might have looked at a modern Bosch and not seen it and then kind of wondered a little bit like, oh, is this actually safe? So is there somewhere people can go to kind of see maybe just like a a list of the different certifying bodies just so they kind of know what they should look for on their equipment? I know you can go to UL's website and uh, they have uh, something called My IQ, which is publicly available. You don't need a, you can create a username and a password. Anybody can and can try to look up based on their model number and manufacturer name if that product is certified by UL. But similarly, if somebody has their product certified by Intertech, as an example, like we do now, you would go to Intertech's website and in their search engine and type our name and see what information comes up. And I also know NBDA, which is the National Bicycle Dealers Association, was uh, making a database where they were trying to capture all this information at one place for different brands. I think you do need an NBDA uh, membership to access this database. Don't quote me on it. I may be wrong about the membership requirement, but uh, they were doing something to compile all this information together so that people can can go at one place and look up all this information. But but if not, you can at least go to these major third-party certification websites and, and you can search for the information there. The search is available. Okay, so if I'm looking at a charging pack for whatever brand bike I own. If I see some kind of logo that indicates it's certified or something, then I could probably go to that certifying body's website and look for it. Correct. Right on. And I'll I'll try and find that MBDA list. And if it is public, uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes for this episode too, so people can go and make sure their bikes are safe. I guess my last question would be, <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm not even going to try and phrase this uh, politely. The bikes that seem way too cheap to be, you know, too good to be true as far as the price goes. I imagine that certification costs money and time and you have to allow visits and, you know, you have to continue to pay to maintain that certification, which seems like an easy place to cut corners, especially if the products are just being shipped over in containers from, you know, wherever they're made. Like, are there some kind of warning signs that people should look out for if they're just like Googling, like, cheapest e-bikes or you know inexpensive e-bikes and then they see this list of whatever brands like i mean what are the warning signs people should look for before buying something that's really really inexpensive if it's very inexpensive the likelihood of that product having any sort of certification is next to impossible because yes you're right certification does cost money and you have to use quality materials you have to use fire rated materials plastics products, chipsets that can pass these stringent tests in those standards and continue to use them. So the chances of a really inexpensive product, you know, uh, having the certification and using, uh, continue to use all these uh, high quality components and materials. So that is a, a red flag that you wouldn't have that certification. So I would strongly suggest that whoever is thinking of buying an, an e-bike should do their research, find a system that is certified and, and buy that and, and, you know, sleep well at night knowing that they have a, they have a certified system, which will not, you know, hopefully cause a fire. Yeah. Nice. I, I would add to that, you know, you can also always email the brand and just ask point blank, right? Like what, what is the safety certification for this? And has, it, you know, is it certified? And I, I've emailed a couple and have not received a response, which 
to me indicates that it's not, and maybe they just don't want to admit it. So definitely check, if, you know, if you've bought something recently and you're not sure, definitely check for labels, do a little research, make sure it's safe. And is there, not that anybody's probably bought a bike and wants to just throw it away because it's not certified, but like, is there, I don't know, like what should somebody do in your opinion, if they get a bike that's just probably not safe? Uh, the least they can do is follow the instructions uh, that have come with the bike, if any. Same things, do not leave it charging while unattended. You know, do not place the charger or the battery on uh, flammable surfaces or close to flammable uh, products or surfaces. Yeah, so I would say those are the, the most two important points you can you can think of. Don't charge it unattended. And do not leave. Do not charge it on flammable or near flammable surfaces. Does a surge protector help at all? Like a legit surge protector? You know, plugging the charger into that versus just straight into the wall, or is that or, or electrical surges just not an issue when it comes to battery fires? You know, electrical surge protector can definitely protect against surges coming from the grid, um, and it's applicable for any kind of uh, product. But uh, that electrical surge protector will not protect against a design flaw that is or the cheap materials that may have been used inside the charger or the battery pack uh, of that non-certified product. Right on. Awesome. Well, if there's uh, anything else you'd like to add on the topic, I'd love to hear it. Otherwise, I've kind of exhausted my questions for you. I appreciate it. Um, I think I'm good. I think we, we had a good conversation around safety. Yeah, right on. Well, thank you so much for sharing. And um, yeah, everybody check your bike chargers and make sure they're safe. If you like this episode and have a product or tech you're curious about, head over to bikerumor.com slash podcast and fill in the form to submit your idea. You'll also find links and photos for this episode there plus a link to this and every other episode we've ever recorded. If you really like this and want more, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating and review. That's the grease that keeps our wheels spinning over here in podcast land, and it helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. You can find us on social. We're at Bike Rumor on all the things. And if you like random entrepreneurship, NFT, Web3, cycling stuff, you'll find me at Tyler Benedict on all the social channels. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.